Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds on KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochileo. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cochilillo. And before we get started, I just want to thank my staff, uh, executive producer, um, Candice Sanderson, our senior editor, Amanda Steele, and binaural expert, Damian Keller. Uh, and if you are interested in becoming a contributor to this podcast, just visit my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and click on the contributor link, and all the information is there. And now, without further ado, our guest for today, Joshua Kuchin. He has some books out. Uh, one of them is called Where the Footprints End, High Strangeness, and the Bigfoot Phenomenon, Volume 1 and Volume 2. Thank you for coming on. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. This is one of my favorite topics. I could talk about Bigfoot for hours. Yeah, it's, it's I think, probably my first love, too. You know, I, uh, I started off as sort of a monster kid, you know, lo- loving all those old Ray Harryhausen movies and, you know, the era of 80s monster movies like you know predator and alien and just any, anything that was a creature feature i would love and from that i think probably grew my uh, initial love of bigfoot for sure yeah for me it was the tv show in search of with leonard nimoy and uh, i couldn't get enough that show. that was the first time i saw the uh the uh, patterson gimlin footage yeah, there are a lot of people for whom it's interesting. That's, that was really a seminal moment for so many people that I talked to. Um, I think my dad was of the generation where he he first learned about it in Argosy or something. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, there are so many people that really remember that as their first Bigfoot moment. Yeah, it, 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 even at that young age, it, it changed my life. I was like, oh my God, could something like that really exist? And then it just has grown since then just like it has for all of us well i I don't know i don't know who said it but somebody said it this way once and i i think it's the best summation of that footage is um if it's real it's incredible footage because it's a footage of a real sasquatch right and if it's fake it's incredible footage because it's the best fake that's ever been you know to, to survive this long um without being definitively debunked i think really speaks to the power of that that whatever moment was captured there. So I, I really think that either way it's, it's remarkable. It is, it is, it, you know, I mean, myself personally, I am a believer that there is something, oh, there's a lot of things that we just don't understand yet. Oh, ab- absolutely. I mean, and, and you know, it's so frustrating because I have a lot of friends who went into the sciences and a lot of them are, are more open-minded about this sort of stuff than you'd think. But at the same time, so many of them just really don't seem to grasp that fallacy that has happened time and time again, where, you know, scientists are just completely convinced that they've cataloged and measured everything and they have a good working model of the way things work. I mean, that it's, you know, time and again, the books had to be rewritten. I mean, back in the late uh, 19th century, um, people were being dis- 
discouraged from going into the sciences. They're like, oh, everything's pretty much settled. <laughs> and that proved to be wrong. And I think it's happened a couple of times where everybody's like, oh, everything's pretty much settled. We can move on now. And it's, it's never, ever the case. No, no. Every 10 years seems like they discover something that changes the narrative. It's true. It's true. And the discussion keeps getting kookier and kookier. I mean, there are things that scientists are saying now that if, you know, you would have heard on radio programs like this you know, 10 or 20 <laughs> years ago about time moving in strange directions and dimensions and stuff. Um, you know, uh, I, I believe scientists saying it kind of as much as I did hearing it back then, you know, from other people, not saying that I don't believe it, but I'm always kind of, I tend to be sort of agnostic about these things. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's interesting how, uh, quote unquote, their science is looking a lot more like, quote unquote, our science, you know, the people who have been involved in the fringe research for a while. Yeah, there definitely is a merging of, of the two schools of thought, no doubt. Um, especially like in the area of quantum physics. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there are, I mentioned, I mentioned the sort of agnosticism that I have. Um, the one hill that I really will die on <laughs> in terms of, you know, arguing people, arguing with people rather, is psi phenomena. I mean, there's so much great laboratory work from, from people like Dean Radin and, uh, and Daryl Bim, and you couple that with a lot of the near-death experience research from all these incredible researchers, and it's it's there's something to that, and I don't think a lot of people realize that, you know, as Colonel John B. Alexander once put it, there's more evidence for the existence of psi than there is for the efficacy of ibuprofen. <laughs> or no, actually, I think it was Russell Targ. I think it was Russell Targ. I got that got that backwards. So, do you think there is some kind of common thread? that ties together a lot of what we consider unexplained phenomenon? So I, I've said multiple times to different people because, you know, I really do love this pan paranormal sort of perspective. And that's where a lot of my work gets influenced from, but I've mentioned to people over time, over the, you know, over the years that uh, I'm not sure if it's a circle or if it's a bunch of Venn diagrams, but those Venn diagrams sure do overlap and, and really do uh, seem to imply that there's, some sort of, if not shared source for a lot of the stuff, at least a shared mechanism. I mean, you look at the stuff that happens in near-death experiences, shamanic initiations, alien abductions, fairy encounters, some Bigfoot encounters, um, and, and you see the same things cropping up time and again. You know, you'll see the same things cropping up. You know, one of the things we talk about and where the footprints end are, are the similarities between Bigfoot encounters and poltergeist encounters, alien abductions, fairy encounters, but fairy folklore that or that is, um, you know, old world witch folklore, which I would have never thought there would have been a connection with. Um, so, yeah, that that uh, that's, that's interesting. What is some of the folklore? Um, where you think Bigfoot would tie in when it comes to, you know, like things like fairies and, you know, stuff like that. Well, you know, uh, what you have to really remember is that, uh, a lot of the ways that we think about stuff like fairy folklore is really corrupted by a lot of the pop culture that we've seen, you know, the fairies were not generally speaking, always short. They were not 
uh, winged until you know the late uh, probably Victorian era, era of memory serves in, in children's books. That's the way they started being depicted. For the longest time, they were one of multiple things, and sometimes they were the dead. Sometimes they were seen alongside the dead. Sometimes they were earth spirits, elemental spirits. I mean, there's there's a whole bunch of different things they were, but they weren't you know little sweet things. And I think a lot of people get uh, really confused when they see people taking the idea of fairies seriously because. Truth be told, it's one of those um, really unifying motifs in a lot of world folklore that there are small beings, uh, generally speaking, again, shapeshifters, all of them, but small beings that tend to live underground and like to take people. <laughs> like You'll find it on every inhabited continent mm -hmm. time and time again. And a lot of the things that you'll find within there, um, you know, the having these beings having paralyzing arrows, these beings... Um, you know, being requiring offerings to be made. All the all these motifs really are shared throughout all these different things. So take a look at that. And then you also take a look at the way that, especially in Western Europe, people threw around the way the word fairy like we would throw around supernatural or paranormal now. You know, they'd say, oh, that if something was unexplained. Oh, it must be of the fairies, you know, or really probably more accurately the way we throw around alien now. You know, anything mm -hmm. anything unexplained is aliens. Um you know, I found a cow with two heads. It must be an alien experiment. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so it really is, it's almost just a body of folklore. And, you know, I'm always staggered at how rich and rewarding it is every time I roll up my sleeves and, and dig into that body of folklore because it touches so many things. Um, you know, I think a good example that I'm always fond of citing is it's been a sort of a minor meme in the Bigfoot community over the past several decades that Bigfoot like to braid horses' manes. Mm -hmm. um, not a lot of people have witnessed this. You know, I did find an account from Russia of someone who saw an Almasti, their version of Bigfoot, uh, stepping into a stable and braiding a horse's mane, but not a lot of people see it. Um, it probably in some cases describes a natural phenomena wherein people don't comb the manes of their horses before they put them up i'm sure that accounts for some of them but still what i find interesting is that that exact same behavior braiding horses manes was attributed to witches and fairies in the old world i mean you know you can find plenty of accounts from devon from cornwall that you know the fairies were doing it the pixies were doing it they'd sneak into your barn at night they braid your horse's mane because they needed to have stirrups so they could ride your horses at night um and it's interesting to me uh you know, as I, I do believe in these things, but I, I'm, I'm realistic about the way that folklore informs our interpretations of these things. And it's fascinating to me that here in the new world, we've taken that that recurring phenomena, whatever it is, genuinely anomalous or just, you know, something that happens when you don't you know, come out your horse's manes, whatever that is, we've taken that and we've applied it to our own sort of native, <laughs> native boogeyman, as it were. Right. Um, and I just, I, I, I find little connections like that to be absolutely you know fascinating um there was a time when i used to say that i wasn't sure if aliens and fairies were describing the same phenomena um i've kind of come off that a little bit and i'm saying that yeah they're pretty much the same phenomena i really do think so um and I've, you know i've talked to fairy researchers who, who will say the same thing and the really intellectually honest ones will say what i tend to think is really intellectually honest, which is not saying that fairies are aliens or aliens are fairies. We're saying that this body of folklore, whatever it is, really does seem to be describing the same phenomena, the same other non-human intelligence that's been interacting with us for millennia, probably as long as we've been on this planet. Hmm. Um, like with, with aliens though, versus fairies, one, one of the things that, that, uh, 
baffles me is why do they need crafts? Well, I think that you have to look at the way that these phenomena tend to recontextualize themselves over time. Um, and what I mean by that is you look at the way that UFOs have always sort of stayed one step ahead of human technology through at least the last, you know, I don't know, 100 and 120 years or so, um, you know, in the early 1900s, it was these steampunk airships. And then by the time we got to the 40s and 50s, there were these art deco flying saucers that once you got into the, you know, 70s and 80s, it transformed into more sort of uh, black triangles. And mm -hmm. you can see it's still evolving today. Most of, this, most of what you see in reports, not all by any stretch of the imagination, but a lot of what you see are these sort of light ball lights or, you know, balls of plasma or whatnot. And I think that whatever this is that we're reacting with deals in theater and symbol quite a bit. And I think it sort of adjusts to our expectations accordingly. So there is no shortage of, uh, there is no shortage of stories about, you know, fairies driving chariots through the sky of fairies driving, you know, literal ships through the sky and literal boats through the sky. Um, I do think it's interesting that if you look at sort of the, the mythology that a lot of cultures have had whenever they go to the other world, by which I mean, you know, just the non-human existence, you might want to call it another dimension, the afterlife, whatever. If you look at that symbol that people in cultures all over the world have really gravitated towards, it's the image of the ship. And you'd always get on the ship with these strange people and you go to some uncharted land, you know, beyond the sea or whatever. Well, what happens when a culture has mapped every inch of the planet? What happens to that ship metaphor that this other intelligence uses to communicate with us? What happens to that? I think it becomes a flying saucer. Mm -hmm. And those uncharted lands beyond the sea become, you know, outer space. You know, that's interesting. That's really an interesting theory. And I don't know if I've ever heard that. The idea that, you know, these beings that we think are extraterrestrial um, create an image of themselves according to our own beliefs. So they're manifesting basically in some ways what we think. Yeah, I, I, can't, I can't, I wish I could take credit for that. Um, but uh, there are a couple of people who have talked about this in the past. Anne Druffel used to talk about it. Uh, back in some of her earlier work that I ran into in some old issues of uh, Flying Saucer Review. Um, I know that the uh, paranormal researcher Hillary Evans used to talk about that a lot. And my friend Greg Bishop uh, has really sort of taken up the, the, that idea uh, lately with this idea. He calls it co-creation theory, which is the idea that our perception is influencing what we're seeing. Um, in other words, sort of like, you know, if you're, if you're ever a fan of Lovecraft, like the descriptions of the creatures in HP Lovecraft are never what the creatures are. It's always so far and horrible that your mind can't, can't wrap around it. So it tries to make sense of it. And it's kind of like that in, in a more positive way. And I think there are some things that um, sort of suggest that this might be what's going on. Um, you've got, you look at sort of the way that, again, these, these things uh, tend to adjust to our expectations, you know, in terms of our culture, you know, that, one of the reasons we don't see as many fairies today is because fairies are silly to us. So that's why we see aliens, I would contend. Um, but, uh, you know, there are instances that I've run into where, you know, you'll have five witnesses and three of them will see 
a craft in the sky and two of them won't. They'll all be pointing in the same direction and the other two people won't see it, you know, or three of them will say it was red and green lights and four of them will say it was blue and green lights, you know, so there are these discrepancies, which imply that perhaps we are bringing something to the table here. And it sounds kind of like a wild, far-fetched idea, but it's pretty easy to see how expectations really do shape our perceptions. I mean, I, I always go to the example of... Um, if you're ever expecting something sweet and somebody wants to offer you something and they like pop something savory in your mouth instead, like, you know, you're expecting a Hershey's kiss and they shove ground beef in your mouth. Uh -huh. There's a split, there's a split second where you're like, what the heck am I eating? What, what did they pop in my mouth? You know, um, things like that. I think, I think really uh, perhaps speak to, to the way that uh, we interact with the environment. And I think that perception is a huge part of this. Yeah. I think perception is just a huge part of, reality in general um you know I, I i definitely think that our reality is not to, doesn't exist something it's not something that exists outside of our perception it, it's something that interacts if they work together oh i i really i really do agree and um if you look at some of the science that's out there regarding this um you know we're just talking about how goofy science is but that doesn't mean all of it's goofy right um you know, a lot of the things that we see in our peripheral vision are not, we're not actually seeing them as we think we're seeing them. It's almost like a, a ghost image of us having seen it earlier. Um, and then sometimes we can have stuff that's right in front of us. And if we're focused on something, we won't see it. A good example that my friend Soraya Azkath over at Where Do the Road Go likes to cite is that there is a book and I can't remember what it's called. I think it's, oh, it's called The Invisible Gorilla. That's what it's called. It's a book about these psychiatrists and they've dated a study. And you can still find this video online. Although if I tell it to you, it's going to spoil it. And you're, you're not going to be able to watch the video and get the effect. But um, it says, you know, it has these people playing basketball. And it says, follow the basketball. And you follow the basketball. And at the end of the clip, it says, did you see the gorilla? And everybody's like, what? <laughs> and it happened to me too when I, when I first saw it. And sure enough, plain as day, if you go back and watch it and you're not paying attention just to the basketball, you're looking all over the screen, you'll see a guy in a gorilla suit walk across the screen. Hmm. But because people are so focused on that basketball, their brain just sort of filters it out. So if you can filter stuff out, what if there's something that can manipulate and use that ability and sort of filter stuff in, if you were? Interesting. So I always, one of, one of my uh, theories with Bigfoot, one that I, I sometimes think is possible is that there's emerging art, like possibly like our reality sometimes crosses or comes really close to another reality. And like either we enter their perception or they enter our perception. Yeah, I, I think that you know, so there are a lot of people who are listening to this who are probably very much firmly in the UFOs or extraterrestrial craft camp and uh, in the camp that uh, Bigfoot are these, you know, relic hominids that have escaped detection for years. And, and I understand that and I get that. And there's some very good arguments in favor of those ideas. But, um, you know, as we talk about Timothy Renner, my co-author, and I in the two books, uh, Where the Footprints in Volume One, Volumes One and Two, um, there is this factor of high strangeness that comes into all these accounts. Um, we're talking about high strangeness, I mean, only in the Bigfoot in the books, but like high strangeness was originally, you know, a UFO phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And I think that you have to start entertaining ideas, like you mentioned, of realities touching, of there being some sort of interdimensional quality or something like that. Uh, to account for a lot of these nonsensical details that really sometimes violate literally the laws of physics or the laws of logic. Um, 
And I think that's a good, I think it's a really good idea. I mean, there are a lot of ideas out there about what Bigfoot might be. Um, you know, one of the things that Tim and I made sure we didn't do in the book was ever come down and say Bigfoot is this, because honestly, neither of us know. Um, and I find it just as compelling to entertain the idea of overlapping realities as I do, you know, time slips or Neanderthal ghosts or, mm -hmm. you know, archetypes or even, you know, something people don't consider. Um, the idea that there might be a biological creature that really does have uncanny abilities or that there are biological creatures out there who are completely quote unquote normal Bigfoot. But sometimes that image of Bigfoot is used by some sort of other intelligence as a screen memory. You know, a lot of people have posited that with owls and deer and whatnot and alien abductions. They'll say, you know, you saw an owl right before you were abducted. That really wasn't an owl. That was uh, a, an alien. That's why that in interaction with the owl was so weird. Well, what if there really is a small group of Bigfoot out there that's a normal flesh and blood creature, but whatever's behind the abduction phenomena uses that as a screen memory. They use Bigfoot as a screen memory, just like they'd use deer and owls too. Um, I think there are a lot of different ideas and it's kind of frustrating sometimes when people say that, you know, Bigfoot is this mm -hmm. <laughs> because man, it's an open-ended question. So it could be multiple things. Like one of the pieces of evidence that recently came up, I believe it was on a expedition Bigfoot is the, or testing DNA of like different hair samples that they were collecting for like bird nests and stuff. And mm -hmm. one of the samples that came up was a chimpanzee. And you know, like mm -hmm. how, how does chimpanzee DNA end up in the Pacific Northwest? You know, yeah, it's it, and it's interesting too because that's one of the people, one of the things that people always sort of push back on um, whenever you suggest that Bigfoot might not be a primate because right. you know, but it could be this both. One. Well, it, it could be both. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, you know, I think it's just as weird that there's chimpanzee DNA <laughs> in the Pacific Northwest as, as there were to be anything else because if it really was an undiscovered primate, it should come back unknown or similar to you know, similar to chimpanzee or something, mm -hmm. but um, but yeah, I mean, I think we have to abandon um. I mean, you know, Jacques Vallée talked about this regarding UFOs too, but we sort of have to abandon this idea of um, this idea of things being physical or non-physical. And I know that sounds kind of strange and airy fairy to a lot of people, but you know, if you believe in ghosts, you're kind of halfway there already because ghosts are obviously, if we accept them as a reality, they're sort of uh, ephemeral and they, they're not embedded in this reality, but they leave footprints and they can slam things and they can leave behind residue like ectoplasm. So a lot of that to me sounds like a lot of this Bigfoot evidence that we have left behind like footprints and even hair and, 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 and blood. I mean, we have to sort of think that maybe um, some things can sort of be brought into existence. Uh, like, just like, like I said, like ectoplasm or like if you're into poltergeist mm -hmm. phenomena, the idea of, you know, the idea that things can just sort of materialize in the middle of a room. Interesting. So, so what is there a piece of folk folklore that really influenced you and led you down this road? Well, the idea for the project uh, was was Timothy's um, because it's such a it's such a big project. I would never have touched it myself. Um, you know th this this idea that uh, that we're going to catalog as much of weird Bigfoot as we can. You know all the anomalies, all the high strangeness. Um, I really have to say that a lot of my work with this began when I was first approached by David Weatherly for his anthology of essays, Woodnox Volume 3. Um, 
always found it really interesting that there are a lot of similarities between Bigfoot and poltergeist uh, encounters. Uh, specifically, I'm thinking about the stuff that the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization would qualify as Class B reports. So Class B reports are things like, you know, knocking in the forest, footprints, smells, sounds, um, things being thrown at you, um, everything short of seeing an actual Bigfoot. And you take that exact same suite of phenomena and you put it inside a house and it perfectly describes poltergeist phenomena. You know, um, this idea of poltergeist, noisy ghost, um, commonly associated with hauntings or with, you know, uh, young people who are exhibiting a spontaneous burst of uh, psychokinetic energy. Um, You know, all these things are exactly the same things that are found in in poltergeist cases you know rocks are thrown rocks that are warm to the touch um and that's something that some people who receive you know rocks from bigfoot that are thrown them they're warm to the touch that was certainly the case in the uh, minerva monster sightings in minerva ohio several decades back um and the assumption is always that bigfoot was holding the rock but these rocks that you find these poltergeist cases are oftentimes warm or even hot to the touch there's actually some great thermal footage from the Humpty Doo poltergeist in uh, Australia, where they actually captured the uh, the rocks on thermal, like starting out hot and getting cooler. So you've got that connection there. You've got these raps and knocks, which, you know, in the Bigfoot community are supposedly wood knocks. They're means to communicate or warn, but, you know, raps and knocks are one of the most common things that you'll find in a spirit infestation or a poltergeist case. Uh, and so you'll see poltergeists and hauntings, you'll see poltergeists manifesting around uh, young people. Uh, there was an idea at one point that it was, you know, repressed sexual energy, but um, the, a lot of the research has changed on that. And that's just the idea that stress can sort of lead to spontaneous PK activity. But, mm-hmm. um, but you also find uh, poltergeist activity. The other place you'll find it commonly is in seances, you know, those old spiritualist seances yeah. where everybody will go, room around a medium and believe it or not um this is really what floored me sort of getting back to your original question about something that i found really compelling um there is no shortage not only of hairy poltergeists but of basically ape men uh manifesting in these seances um in the 1950s paranormal author stan gooch uh actually said he saw a prehistoric man that was either fur covered or clad in fur um hairy hands often manifested a lot of these different seances uh medium frantic kluski in the early 20th century also manifested manifested some sort of mysterious ape man so it seems like you know (laughs) there's there's a lot of connections there and i'm not saying that Bigfoot is a manifestation of poltergeist activity, but there are, are a lot of similarities there. And I think we should be open to the possibility that it's not as straightforward as, as being a, uh, an ape in the woods. <laughs> You're not saying it's a manifestation of poltergeist activity, but it's a manifestation of poltergeist <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, yeah. No, if, if you really want to press me on it, my, my, my shtick is, uh, you know, I'm not saying it's fairies, but it's It just fairies, reminds me um, like that alien guy. <laughs> No, absolutely. That's sort of the way that, that, that Tim and I structure this book is each book says, well, if you look at, because in some ways, volumes one and volume two are not really even about Bigfoot. They're about viewing whatever that suite of activity is through all these other different lenses, right? So like, yeah. let's look at the Bigfoot phenomena through the poltergeist lens. Let's look at it through the ufo contact lens let's look at it through the witch lens you know Mm -hmm. the fairy lens and uh 
and finding those similarities and how they resonate was actually a, a ton of fun. But when I found out that there were ape men showing up in seances, I was just like, uh, uh, okay. I've never even <laughs> what, heard what that before. Saying? I'm going to have to research that. It's interesting. Yeah, it's wild. I think uh, in, even in one of Nick Redfern's books, I think he talked about a, a Bigfoot that showed up after a Ouija board session with some kids. So it's it's enough to to further emphasize that there's some sort of connection here. Um and I'm not really sure what that connection is, but it's it's worth exploring. I would love to try to conjure a Bigfoot. My wife might get mad at me, though. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I think there are ways to, I think there are ways to to interact with this stuff. I think you've got to sit back and ask your serious questions, uh, some serious questions about your what you're willing to lose and how far you're willing to go. Because I think that. Um, this stuff can get out of control really quickly if you try to bring it into your life deliberately. Hmm. Listen, I recently spoke with somebody who uh, from BFRO who's currently uh, interviewing and vetting someone who has said that they've had Bigfoot encounters for 40 years. Yeah, that's an interesting thing that has become more acknowledged in in the bigfoot community and and just what you said kind of just made me think that because like maybe he's invited it no i mean i I think that i think that all these things tend to i think there's some people well again my co-author timothy says it best he says he thinks that uh, it's kind of like drawing like some people just have a natural affinity for drawing and some people have to work at it but i think we can all sort of invite this stuff in or or become attached to this stuff. You know, there was a time uh, back in the uh, 50s and 60s where people who saw UFOs all the time were sort of laughed at and called repeaters. But, <laughs> but um, you know, now a lot of that thinking has changed. It's kind of odd for someone to have a one-off experience now. When, now, when you talk to people about UFOs and stuff, it makes more sense. It fits much more with the pattern that they're sort of encounter-prone people. Um, and, you know, that, that sort of phenomenon of people who are interacting with Bigfoot over the course of 40 years you know, I have a lot of questions about that. Like, can't you get us a, a dang picture? <laughs> um, but uh, but it is something that you see now more and more of is this discussion of people who are habituators, people who have these longitudinal, long-term uh, relationships with Bigfoot on their property. And, you know, it'd be interesting to see what that researcher came up with uh not casting aspersions on this individual, but casting aspersions on the Bigfoot community in general. A lot of times... The, the weirder stuff is literally thrown out, like literally thrown into the rubbish bin. Um, I've heard this from a lot of different researchers, um, some of which I cite in the book, that there is a deliberate bias against including some of the stuff that doesn't fall into the flesh and blood, you know, wood ape hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Um, and with something like a 40-year habituation, I would be inclined to say that things probably got real weird. Um, it's a bit like the it's a bit like the UFO phenomenon in, in that respect because you know the people who are always the most convinced that they saw something that was an extra extraterrestrial craft and not something stranger uh, because you know I think fairies and <laughs> ghosts and everything is kind of stranger than extraterrestrials in a lot of ways. Um, it, it, the people who see see a light in the sky or have like a one off sighting, a quick sighting, are usually the ones who are like, no, it was a spaceship from another planet. They sort of buy into that uh, mainstream paranormal narrative 
And similarly, you'll find the same thing with Bigfoot sightings. You know, if the hunter who sees one duck behind a tree or someone who sees one walk in front of their car at night, they're usually the ones who are like, no, I saw it. It was an animal. It was a flesh and blood animal. But just as with the uh, UFO phenomena, the more experiences people have over a longer period of time, the weirder these stories get. Um, you know, the abduction stories, people who have abductions all of, you know across their lives. Mm-hmm have stuff like dead relatives and uh, these synchronicities that just are like reality warping synchronicities. And sure enough, people who are habituators of Bigfoot or claim to be are the ones who get a lot of the strange stuff happening. A lot of the poltergeist phenomena in their house, um, you know, while they have Bigfoot outside, they've got poltergeist inside um, who see anomalous lights on their property, um, who see things that just really shouldn't exist. Um, so it's, it seems like there's something about the closer you get to this, these phenomena mm-hmm. and the longer the amount of time that you spend in their presence, the weirder it gets and the more it shows kind of what I would presume is its true face as opposed to a facade. Interesting. Um, one of the things that, that I was thinking is <clears throat> this guy who's had, you know, 40 years of encounters, most people who, you know, abductees, it's been happening to them their entire lives. And a lot of times it seems to be even multi-generational. So I wonder if there's something, some type of certain people that that have just like a, a vibration that, that resonates more with attracting these type of phenomena. Yeah, is you know, can anybody be a Jedi or is it uh is is it something inherited in the bloodline? Um you know, I, I do think that there's something about a natural aptitude. Um for that although if you look at you know um some of the conversations that jacques valet had prior to the fall of the soviet union he was told that uh the russians were always better with remote viewing because unlike americans they didn't kill their witches <laughs> you know <laughs> <And> so the <laughs> americans and the europeans went out and we killed all our witches so we got to sort of thin the thin the uh the esp gene pool a bit i don't know if that's true or not um but it's an interesting idea that you're dealing with something like that for sure hmm. Um, how, how does uh, how like um, one one of your other books is the evidence? Yeah, um, yeah. So volume one is folklore. Mm-hmm. Volume two is evidence. It's kind of an arbitrary cut. The main thing is that we were looking at it and put it together. It would have been about one hundred and sixty thousand words, which is pretty intimidating for, especially for a, you know, a nonfiction paranormal book. Um, so we sort of noticed that there was this rough shape on in both volume one compares, you know, Bigfoot against all those things that we talked about, mm-hmm. you know, which is fairies, aliens, all that stuff. Timothy has a jaw dropper of a chapter about uh, this uh, connection to folkloric women in white that was, I think is probably the best chapter in both volumes. Um, and then volume two sort of loosely falls around evidence. And I guess might be a little bit more precise to say that it's more experiential. So you're looking at, you know, these, these footprints, these pathways that do end in the middle of a field, you know, it's not like Bigfoot didn't jump 300 feet <laughs> out of the field. Like yeah. this is just there. This is just, you know, these, this tracks just end, um, you know, single footprints are a thing. Um, footprint, you know, trackways that are all of the left foot or all of the right foot, um, you know, footprints with toes that don't correspond to the regular pentadactyl or five-toed format. Um, that That's a lot more common than people think. And uh, we try to take apart why that's not explainable by mutations or injury. Um, and, uh, you know, Timothy talks about uh, 
some of the mystery lights that you run into in that section. Um, some of these weird vocalizations that you get that are mm-hmm. just absolutely uncanny and how they mimic things. Um, the possibility that altered states of consciousness might be involved in Bigfoot encounters and uh, stuff like uh, how the trickster archetype that people like uh, George P. Hansen, who wrote the trickster and the paranormal, how the trickster archetype manifests itself in the Bigfoot uh, communities as well. So yeah, it's a little bit, it's a little bit more evidence-based. There's plenty of folklore in volume two and plenty of evidence in volume one, but that's sort of the arbitrary cut that we made. Interesting. Um, do you dive into any, like, <clears throat> with a lot of Bigfoot reports, just usually reporting of like strange lights too. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's a connection between these strange light orbs and Bigfoot? Well, I mean, it's, it's all speculative, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of what my friend Mike Cullen said a while back about, you know, after everybody's done their presentations at the UFO conference, you know, you get everybody to the bar and you get a couple of drinks in them and then they start opening up about the synchronicities about, you know, the, the phone calls from their dead grandmother, like the really weird stuff that shouldn't be, you know, shouldn't be happening in if, in the, if the model of the extraterrestrial hypothesis is correct. And I've gotten the impression from the Bigfoot researchers that I've talked to that the lights are kind of the same way in the Bigfoot community. Like once you get people a little bit loosened up, they start saying, yeah, you know, we were out on this, on this, you know, expedition five and we saw Bigfoot out there the other, th- you know, three times that we were there. But this one time we didn't see Bigfoot, but we sure as heck saw these glowing orbs of light <laughs> that were yeah. dancing through the forest. Um, and you hear it time and again. And I think that the the light phenomena is a pretty darn good example of that contextualization uh, that, I, that, I, that I talk about. Because, you know, a light in the, like that in the sky is a UFO, a light like that dancing, you know along the river in Ireland is a fairy light mm-hmm. <laughs> a light like that in, the, in an old house is a, is a ghost. Right. Um, so what are the lights? I don't know. Uh, you know, there's some people that you'll, will talk to you and say that, you know, oh, it must be the, the animal's eyes are shining. Um, Timothy does a great job of sort of dissecting that and how it kind of might make sense sometimes, but most of the time it doesn't. And, you know, if you have an animal with self illuminating eyes that has no precedent in nature at all. Um, so he sort of takes it apart like that. Timothy and I have played back and forth with the idea that the the uh, the balls of light, the light orbs, might be <laughs> the simplest version of whatever these phenomena are. Um, you know, if if you, <laughs> I always sort of use the the video game analogy. If you've ever played a video game, especially this happened on PC sometimes, mm-hmm. and somebody messed with one of the one of the texture files, so they just took like deleted a texture file, and like the wall, it would be like a wall texture, right? And you look at the wall in the video game, and it would be like just white <laughs> or just pink or something. Right. There would be no skin on it. There would be no texture on it, right? I kind of wonder if the light phenomena is like the purest form of whatever we're dealing with here. Um, if it's not like the unskinned version of all these things happening. And um, I think that there might be something to that. You look at uh, sort of the work of Andrew Collins, who's talked about the possibility that UFOs might be some sort of intelligent plasma. And uh, I honestly, I'm kind of leading the connection that these balls of light are like literally consciousnesses themselves just bouncing through the forest. Uh, I have nothing scientific to back myself up on that, but Mm -hmm. it's an idea that I've been playing with lately. It's a fascinating idea. And also, this is just another common denominator between the different phenomenon 
Um, that yeah, I, never I really think it might be the. I think it might be the <laughs> most common thing to all uh, different phenomena, all the different phenomena we talk about. I mean, Dogman, believe it or not, some lake monsters. Um, you know, obviously near death experiences and stuff like that, and UFOs. I mean, it's it's it. These 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 anomalous lights, these ghost lights, show up in everything. Absolutely everything. You're you're spot on about that. That's pretty cool. Um, actually, the Dogman phenomenon. Uh, somebody came up with a really good theory on my show because um, Dogman is often spotted down here, like where I live. At. Like I live like on the coast of uh, Alabama, near Mississippi and Louisiana. Okay, where yeah. it's pretty common. And uh, also, one of the common things down here that maybe people don't know is that. Uh, some of these farmers stuff have kangaroos. Okay, yeah, I didn't, I did not know that at all. So they're, they're farming kangaroos, huh? Yeah, yeah. I've had kangaroo, kangaroo jerky. I've had kangaroo jerky. So, so, so they have uh, kangaroos, and uh, you know, like if you see a kangaroo hopping down the street at middle of the night, you're not going to think, oh, it's a kangaroo because you're in Mississippi, <laughs> Louisiana, but you might mistake it for a dog, man. Th- that's an interesting idea, and that's you know, people talk about like you know. The comment that I hate to get, I'll never forget. I'm a musician, so I, 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 there was one band that I was in, and we were like all like, you know, three quarters of the way to being absolutely drunk. And it was like 2 a.m., and I was getting ready to turn in, and somebody's like, So, what do you think UFOs are? And I'm like, Oh, God, <laughs> it's like I was hoping to go to bed, right? Because it's, it, I, I don't think one answer is, is, is appropriate for any of this stuff. I mean, UFOs are probably 80% misidentification. Um, and then that remaining 20% or so is a combination of misunderstood natural phenomena, hoaxes, and then, yeah, genuinely weird stuff is another slice of that 20%. That <laughs> might be aliens, and it might be psi phenomena, and it might be, you know, a, you know, spirit phenomena, I don't know. But, like, a lot of different things make up what a UFO is, right? And I think maybe with, with Dogman, that might be the case. A lot of roadside crossings in Alabama might be kangaroos. That's an interesting idea. Of course, that falls apart when you have these stories, whether you believe it or not, of somebody like, you know, staring down a dog man that's snarling at them. <laughs> but, but, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that makes, a, that actually makes a lot of sense. Do you run into a lot of uh, escape kangaroos? Cause you know, that's a whole 14 category unto itself. Um, They're here. I, I, when I was, when I was <clears throat> out to school in Wisconsin and while, while I was at Wisconsin, there was a wallaby that was hit and killed by a car, and then there was another kangaroo that they captured that they ended up taking to the to the oh. zoo in Madison, Wisconsin, because nobody collected it. So, so yeah, this, these sort of things do happen. Um, yes, is is that something you hear about? Yeah, yeah. I, I well, I worked with a guy who had a pet kangaroo, and that's when I realized I, I had no idea that people were actually had kangaroos around here. But they well, do. they've got to be they've got to be hard to keep contained, right? Obviously, I mean they they hop around. I mean, I don't even yeah. know how you could contain them with a the fence because it could jump over it. Yeah, I think I want to say. So one of the things that we did research for uh, for volume two, because you know that's one of the things that people say is that oh, Bigfoot jumped to you know Bigfoot jumped somewhere or Bigfoot you know did this or that, um, which you know Bigfoot is oftentimes remarked in some of the literature as having these you know superhuman bounds, but. I think that the highest vertical leap in the in the animal kingdom is like twenty five feet, and that's like a snow leopard. So, I, I, but still, like that's that's real high. I'm sure kangaroos have a pretty high vertical too. Yeah, yeah. It, it's just one of those interesting 
explanations that somebody threw out there that I would have never thought about. And I said, well, it could be. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's... It could be one explanation because for me, Dogman didn't even come into my uh, um, my my view or, or my awareness until like, I'd say like the last three years. It's like, yeah, that's it's an just interesting sort of, point. It, it sort of just came out of nowhere. Also, I know it's like Dogman reportings. Well, these these things kind of do seem to have a genesis point that just arises out of nowhere sometimes. I mean, I, looking back in the '90s, like all of a sudden chupacabras were a thing. It's like where did this where did this come from? You know, um, and you know, Dogman was kind of like that. And I know some people will say that there are older reports, and yes, I know that there are. But in terms of like actually getting attention you've got you know the black-eyed kids sort of came out of nowhere yeah which, uh, chupacabras came out of nowhere and now dogman kind of <clears throat> you know i know where i i think i can can i can i, I timothy timothy and i have talked about this ad nauseum i think that i can confidently say that dogman and i believe people have seen this thing but if if, if there's if dogman is not a misidentification in those instances it's got to be like straight up paranormal <laughs> like, like i cannot really wrap my head around you know the idea of a physical flesh and blood right. dog man you know people have said oh maybe dogs evolved this and that and the other but there's just literally zero fossil record evidence for something like that um, or it could be a skinwalker yeah which I, I would lump into the to the you know that sort of paranormal idea um but yeah i mean absolutely i think that yeah, yeah, man, those those skinwalker stories are nothing to to mess around with. But uh, when well, you know skinwalkers, too, or sometimes in some you know uh, Native American communities are sort of actually what they identify Bigfoot as. Like, no, it's not really a monkey man; it's a it's a black magic doctor. Yeah, but but I mean, the government has actually researched a skinwalker thing. I mean, that's why they had Bigelow bought Skinwalker Ranch. So, so there must be something to it. Is the government's interested in researching it? Yeah, um, my opinion on Skinwalker Ranch has has changed and sort of become a bit more nuanced over the years because, you know, you did have Nids and Bigelow involved with with Valet, um, but. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that someone like uh, Erica Lukes has, has pointed out over the years that there seems to have been some very shady uh, military weapons testing that was happening there as well, um, non-lethal technologies. Um, but at the same time, like I hear those stories and I say, okay, well, that's all fine and good. And there's even some fine print that she's found where it definitely looks like that was happening to some of the people who were there on the ranch and who were working with NIDS. Um, but some of the stories don't fit that. And you've got to look at the, you know, the history of the place, the Uinta Basin has always been weird, you know, in terms of the, some of the things that have happened there. So, yeah, I think that there are places like Skinwalker that definitely um, are sort of, you know, window areas like John Keel would say that, where there's something strange that's happening there. And, and, you know, that was a funny thing about when the, when was it that the New York times article came out about UFOs? Is that 2018 or 2017? I think it was 17. 2017. Yeah. And it was just like, you know, it was 
the real re- revelation to me in there was not like, oh, guess what? The government's studying UFOs because it's, you know, if, if you've been following this stuff at all, like, yeah, they never stop, you know, <laughs> like we, we all knew the they never stop. Yeah, exactly. The the re- real revelation for me was that they were sort of lumping in stuff like what was happening in, in Skinwalker, that they were sort of embracing and looking at the paranormal uh, more. And I think that was, for me, the real thing that I found to be news out of that. So, yeah, um, and, and you know what? I, I think that... Uh, some of the stuff I've seen from that Skinwalker Ranch TV show is actually pretty interesting as well. It was interesting. Um, you know, especially like some of the weird readings that they were getting from up above the ranch. Yeah. And you've got people who were experiencing these physical effects too. Yeah. And, uh, and I just, I, I know that, you know, television programs are always pretty darn shady about the way they do stuff. I get that. You know, I get that. Um, we've all seen it. Um, but if somebody's, I don't think somebody's going to fake their, their, their medical issues for a, for a TV show. No. I don't know. <clears throat> you know, I have so many theories about Skinwalker Ridge, whether it's a vortex or if there's a UFO buried there. Or if there's some kind of craft that craft that's hovering above it, that's somehow cloaked or immaterial. So yeah, strange. then there's the whole. I mean, I think, I think of those options. The one that I would lean more towards is, is the idea that there's something going on underground because that's you know one of the things that they'd say is every time they started digging on the ranch, the, the Sherman family, um, they, that's when what activity would kick off supposedly, and they'd hear yeah. sounds like gears happening underneath the earth um which you know believe it or not uh happens in some bigfoot reports um tim actually had something that was like <laughs> the the squatchiest bigfoot encounter without actually seeing a bigfoot um he heard some knocks and had a horrible smell and was paralyzed with fear in the forest and he he was just absolutely irrational fear right he wants to see bigfoot but he's paralyzed with fear and then he hears the sound like three gears clicking over and then all of it vanishes. The sound comes back to the forest. The smell goes away. He's no longer terrified. Just like that. Um, and, you know, we, we, there, were some, there were some examples where we found uh, similar things happening at areas where people were seeing Bigfoot in other parts of the country. Um, I think it was on the Yakima Reservation uh, up in Washington where they were seeing UFOs and uh, hearing these underground noises and were also... Uh, and we're also seeing a bunch of Bigfoot sightings. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was something that, you know, one of the books that really was a sort of the, the Papa Bear book <laughs> for, for this for this particular project was uh, Anne Slayton Alberry's um, Anne Slayton Alberry's uh, book Bigfoot. And uh, it's a, it's a great book about like all the weirdness that was happening around Bigfoot in Southern California, which is something that you don't hear a ton about. You hear a lot about Northern California, yeah. but not Southern California. And uh, they had some, some tapes that they had played some tape recorders back in uh, some areas uh, of heavy Bigfoot activity. And they got these sounds of machinery, like a generator or a hydroelectric plant coming from underground and these strange robotic voices that appeared on the tapes after they recovered them. So very much evocative of, of the Sherman ranch for sure. It's interesting. <clears throat> Do you think that there could be a civilization in the center of the earth? So, I mean, 
it's it's one of the more compelling ideas about what's behind ufos right it's this idea of maybe a breakaway civilization or an underground civilization um we have really a very poor understanding of of how vast these caves are um and caves have always been a site of all sorts of uh you know unexplained phenomena for sure um so i think that where my head is at is leaning in a little bit more of a metaphorical direction these days. Um, as far as like a literal, uh, a literal like civilization underground, I think the, I, the variation on that sort of idea that I'll be most sympathetic to would be the idea of there being some sort of civilization, you know, at the bottom parts of the ocean, because we have no idea what's going on down there for sure. Hmm. You know, the bottom of the ocean theory, you know, one of the, one of the ones nobody ever really talks about is the aquatic ape theory. I you love know? that idea, though. Yeah, I love that idea. I, I do, too. And I think there's, there's I don't know, it's just like, like if, you, if you buy into like Darwinism, like you would almost have to seriously consider it. Well, I mean, there are so many, there are so many things about human evolution that are really strange in terms of us being primates in terms of our affinity for the water. Uh, there's a, there's a whole book that was written about it. I can't remember what it was called. Um, but literally like as humans go deeper underwater, we have some physiological changes that allow us to survive down there. Like in terms of the way that our bodies react to the pressure and, you know, basically the, the whole thesis of this book was that um, human beings can do things at depths of water that no other primate would physically be able to do like they die. So you, you talk about like, you know, these pearl fishers or whatever who go under water for like, you know, 20 minutes or whatever on, on one breath, right. um, you know, your heart rhythm changes, all these things change as you adapt. And, you know, I think that's really interesting. Um, and the idea that uh, you might have, you know, something like mermaids that are literally, you know, aquatic apes. Um, there was a, a marine biologist by the name of Stellar who supposedly cataloged a sea ape, but some people think that that's a, that's a hoax, but um, you know, people don't like to talk about the fact that people still see mermaids. You know? <laughs> um, and you know, I, I don't know what to make of it, but I still do find it really interesting. Um, and one of the things that I was surprised to discover was that, there's kind of a strong correlation between mermaids and Bigfoot. And I would have never, ever, ever thought that that was the case, but, uh, but Bigfoot seem much more comfortable with swimming than any other, you know, any other great ape because, you know, apes tend to avoid it. Um, mm -hmm. Bigfoot are always often associated with these waterways. You know, yeah. It seems like it. they follow. Yeah. And you can take a map of like rainfall in the U S and a map of Bigfoot sightings and it, lines up also kind of lines up with with uh, underwater sorry with underground caves <laughs> incidentally mm -hmm. um but what i was astonished to find out was that you know a lot of people a lot of traditions along the west coast talk about bigfoot swimming like underwater like in this frog-like motion and it's really consistent there's some uh some islands off the coast of northern california where you know it's it's local lore that the bigfoot swim like you know a mile out to this other island to collect mollusks or whatever um a very common thing that's reported in uh you know sort of southern uh coast of alaska there's a great book called Rinko sasquatch by j robert alley and he talks about uh 
there are a lot of sightings of Bigfoot that are seen like not only <laughs> not only like you know in the ocean but like out to sea like <laughs> we're talking about like a mile offshore people are seeing this little Bigfoot head pop up really? um yeah yeah um there was a case that I found that was really astonishing which was supposedly um in 1970 these two fishermen were in the gulf of mexico 29 miles into the gulf of mexico and they say they saw a skunk ape swimming um which you know if, if again if bigfoot's an ape that's doesn't make a ton of sense to me i'm sure it could happen but um you know people have run into uh uh people have been grabbed by hairy hands under the water um and uh you know, we tend to think about mermaids being sexy, but a lot of these male mermen were oftentimes described as being, uh, as being like, you know, hairy and swarthy, and they could actually take off their tails and come ashore on two legs. So there's some, there's something there to that. Um, you know, uh, and you also have some stories, um, in indigenous lore, uh, again, in Alaska that the, the Tlingit analog for Bigfoot, uh, Dysanokwa, actually lives in a palace at the bottom of the ocean. Um, so I don't know. <laughs> Mersquatch, you know? <laughs> hmm. I, I never thought of that. I didn't even know that people were seeing squatches 29 miles off the coast. Yeah, it's it's really strange. And I can't imagine have... like like being out there like like fishing and like, oh, well, there's you, a squatch. Well, you... <laughs> <laughs> you know, it does, it does remind me, like, you hear these stories sometimes about, um, you know, deer or something getting panicky and getting pulled out by the tide. They find deer a couple miles offshore. But, yeah, you're 29. I mean, I don't think you can even really. Can you see the coast when I don't you're 29 so. miles no. out to sea mm. in the Gulf of Mexico? I don't know. Um, but, yeah, there's, there's a loose connection there. Um, and, you know, there's also a... One of the things that Timothy and I found as we worked through, especially volume one, is that there was this really, we couldn't get away from this wild man archetype. And what I mean is like the idea of the wild man, the hairy person who lived in the woods from European folklore. Right. And a lot of times these wild men uh, didn't behave like monkeys, but they sure did behave a lot of the ways that Bigfoot behaves. Like, you know, they were able to mimic, they were able to shape shift and size change you know they were able to they had some you know, these miraculous abilities that are kind of seen like literally right in in line with a lot of these bigfoot reports and one of the things that a lot of uh european wild men would do is that they would live at the bottom of lakes you know um uh there was a an example um from wales where they were draining this lake there was treasure hunting and they'd actually drain this this lake that had a reputation for being uh for being sort of a haunted lake. And at the bottom of the lake, they found this this big shaggy giant who stood up and, and yelled at them and warned them. So, you know, where, where do I fall on that? Do I literally believe that, uh, do I literally believe that, you know, Bigfoot lives at the bottom of lakes? No, but that's when I think, you know, if you entertain the idea more along the lines of this co-creative idea that we were talking about earlier, um, might be able to explain some of that because we're not explain it, but help it be a little bit more understandable. Um, because there's also this, this theme that runs through a lot of the paranormal of the unconscious, right? Mm -hmm. The, uh, the, 
the hidden things, the things that are just below the surface, you know, Nessie lives underwater. <laughs> uh, we're, we've just, we've just been talking about, you know, underground bases, you know, and underground things like supposedly there are all these underground alien bases and fairyland was always underground and Bigfoot, you know, is often seen around these abandoned mining shafts and might live in caves itself. And, uh, you know, when you look at the things that, these monsters, for lack of a better term, represent, they represent a lot of the things that we deal with in our own unconscious, our own subconscious. Um, and sometimes I wonder if this isn't sort of a way of, of this being reflected in our real world. Now, of course, that sounds, people are going to hear that and they're going to say that I think it's all in people's heads. That's not what I mean. I, I, I mean that I think it's, I think these things are from your head, but I don't think they're in your head, if that makes any sense. Right. One of the things like back to, before we go, I want to talk about the subconscious thing, but one of the things that popped in my mind as we're talking about the aquatic stuff is, you know, octopuses are able to shape shift. Yes. You know, and, and they're able to use tools. They're very intelligent. And imagine if, if, if some kind of, if, if Bigfoot could possibly be some kind of octopus that has found a way to exist underwater and above water. You know, it's really interesting that you mentioned that because um, I mentioned octop octopi in, uh, I can't remember which one it is, but there are these stories of Bigfoot being able to shapeshift. And if you look at the things that people say that they're able to shapeshift into, some of them sound like they're just staying still and they you know, sort of look like, you know, if you've ever seen a ghillie suit, you totally get how Bigfoot yeah. could <laughs> just mm -hmm. disappear, right? But some of these stories are of people who are, you know, like two feet away from a Bigfoot and, you know, somebody else is watching them through the binoculars and saw the Bigfoot hunker down and stay real still. And the person that he's seeing, the hunter he's seeing walk beside it, two feet beside this Bigfoot, doesn't realize it's a Bigfoot. I'm thinking, you know, I think I might, I, th I don't think I'd mistake a guy in a ghillie suit for a tree trunk. Like, it seems like there's almost like a texture component that's happening there too. Um you know, to say nothing of, you know, Bigfoot literally dematerializing in front of people, which is a whole other story. Um, but, uh, and the only thing that I can think of that really does a good job at like changing textures like that, as well as colors in the animal kingdom is, is definitely you know, the, the, the octopus. Yeah. Because I mean, some of those videos you see them were just absolutely uncanny, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's weird. Bigfoot, kind of wants to mimic things i mean so we've got that sort of example of shape-shifting there's some other stories that i found of bigfoot shape-shifting into people there's a lot of indigenous lore that talks about them being people that are able to shape-shift and change mm -hmm. and whatnot um but also they're like they're vocal mimics to an unparalleled degree i mean like just the stuff that you read is absolutely nuts it must be something like the liar bird have you ever heard of liar bird l-y-r-e bird yeah yeah, it's like those videos are just of like, you know, it's imitating a chainsaw and a, mm -hmm. and, a, and a camera and it's just crazy. And these stories are out there of like Bigfoot, you know, imitating a train whistle and a forklift and uh, different types of birds, like yeah. with an, this absolutely precise, um, precise degree of, of accuracy. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. Yeah, I had you a know, conversation I'm, with Ron Moorhead about that. Okay, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. definitely one of your. He's definitely one of the go-to guys to, to know about that. We, uh, uh, Ron gets a lot of love in, in our book for sure. <laughs> um, I, uh, you know, I was thinking though, it's it's crazy how much. 
I know that there were because there are indigenous stories about this happening. So I know that it wasn't influenced by this, but like I keep on coming back to how much Bigfoot sounds like the predator, you know, <laughs> like somewhat. Yeah. It has this, a cloaking, the cloaking and the mimicry and the, you know, the not leaving footprints and the jumping to, from tree to tree. Like some people say Bigfoot does to evade being, you know, seen. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't know, I mean, like I said, all this stuff existed in native lore that these things happen. So it's not, it can't just be a product of, you know, people seeing Predator. But it's just, there's it's 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 really uncanny. It kind of makes you, kind of almost makes me wonder, I should put it that way, um, if uh, the creators weren't inspired by some of this stuff. Absolutely. So, so I mean, so, so let's go back to your, your this, the subconscious because I, I just had to get that octopus thing out before I forgot. Oh no, no, that's a good point. That's a very good point. Yeah, but 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 the, the subconscious too is very interesting because you're right. Like the um, like like I read tarot cards and anything that has to do with water, caves, anything like that always represents the subconscious mind, that which is below the surface. And, yeah, I mean. Yeah. And and I wonder, you know, you know, that that sort of brings me back to this idea that we're, we could be possibly manifesting some of it ourselves. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's sort of where I, where I come back to time and time again is the idea that whatever this is likes to speak to us in theater. And man, I tell you what, the more you talk to people, the more you talk to witnesses, this stuff is personal. Um, you know, people will say, I'll tell you how many times I've heard people say, this thing looked into my soul, you know, mm-hmm. um, and then how it manifests in their lives, you know, wrecking their lives or these crazy synchronicities that a lot of abductees have. This thing is personal. And if it's that personal, I don't want to say it's generated by us because that makes it sound like... It's, it's a, a possibility that I have. Well, it's, it's a possibility that I have to entertain. Well, even if it's not just our imagination, like kind of like a tulpa sort of idea. Um, which I'm well, not a, a thought, fan of because I don't, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not a huge fan of it because I want my monsters, damn it. But, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, you, you have entertained that idea, but I, I just think that, that a lot of these stories, these encounters have messages behind them. And that, that theme comes up time and time again of, uh, you know, I mean, the dead are buried underground nessie is underwater underground alien bases underground fairyland bigfoot living in caves etc this is sort of this is sort of territory that uh one of my major inspirations patrick harper um talks about in his book demonic reality is this idea that um these things are really are indeed closely tied to us but they're also expressing these things that can't be expressed in words and they're using some of this this imagery Mm-hmm. so yeah I, I don't know it's it's an interesting idea and it's it's one of the, it's it's kind of one of those pan paranormal things now of course people will say well ufos are in the sky and i'm like okay well yeah that <laughs> that blows it all apart for sure um but uh yeah it's 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 a really interesting connection to be made there i, I was interviewing somebody on tuesday and he was a demonologist and he would say that all these unexplained phenomena are some type of demon. So, so we have a, I'm a regular on where do the road go? We have this running joke that everything's demons. (laughs) And, 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 and that's sort of, I mean, but that, 
a lot of us fall into this trap, right? I mean, I think that uh, there was a point shortly before her her death, God bless her, that uh, Rosemary Rosemary Ellen Guiley was kind of saying everything's kind of gin, therefore gin, right? And I'm, yeah. I'm guilty of it too, like you know, therefore fairies. Um, I think that you know, yes to all the above really might be closer to the answer. Um, yes, it's all the demons. Yes, it's all fairies. Yes, it's all this. Yes, it's all that. Uh, again, keep on coming back to my, my co-author, Timothy Renner, who says that whenever somebody tells him it's all poltergeist, he goes, yep. And whenever they say it's all fairies, he goes, yep. <laughs> because it's, I think we're just putting different names on different things. Um, you know, if I have to, if you have to hold my feet to the fire, on what I think these things are to a certain degree. Um, I mean, you can't, you can't write off the everything's demons thing because there's a lot of it that seems that way. And a lot of the stuff does seem kind of negative. Um, you know, some of it seems positive, uh, but it really does play into that sort of, you know, Judeo-Christian good versus evil thing, which even though I'm a practicing Christian myself, I don't think that's what we're looking at. Um, you know, I think, uh, as some colleagues of mine have said before, uh, there's good things and there's bad things and there's stuff in between. And if you get in the water with a great white shark, it might it might ruin your life, you know, or end your life. But that doesn't mean that the shark's evil. It's just it's just a shark's gonna shark, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think it might be something like that. You know, you've got good things, you've got bad things, you've got neutral things, you've got things in between that are like you know things for hire. And what do I mean by things? Fairies, gin, poltergeist, demons, angels, you know, your own mind, <laughs> your subconscious, your id, your superego, all these things. Like I don't really don't know what it is. And that's that's really I think the the thing that a lot of paranormalists are trying to get to, trying to grasp is like, what is that thing? What do we call this thing? And I don't know if we're ever meant to know. Um, I think we're always just gonna have different names for it, for sure. That's what makes it fun. Not yeah. yeah i mean yeah it's it's kind of it's kind of funny you know after being in this for a little while not nearly as long as a lot of people but my my litmus test for whether or not um i'm going to have a good conversation with somebody is whether or not they think that they're going to be the one to solve it or that they're going to get go to their grave knowing what it is mm-hmm. like you know you, you know, you might, he might, she might, whatever. Um, but if you can get to the point where you don't know if you will, and you're just doing it because you're interested in it and you're just looking for the truth, but you're fine. If you don't you know realize the truth, that's when I'm like, okay, I think that you're, that's the more mature stance because a lot of people have come before you and a lot of people have tried and been convinced that they're going to solve it. And nobody has. Um, and that's because every theory is like, you know, 75% sound right <laughs> every single yeah. theory is like makes sense up to 75 percent or so and then that last 25 percent just doesn't fit at all and right. uh one one of the things that i i, I for me chasing somebody's unexplained phenomenon it's almost like a spiritual thing for me because having it an unknown keeps the door open rather than closing it no matter what it is. No, I I just had this conversation the other night with Mike Cullen, and and uh, it's one of the things that he was told. He was talking about, you know, 
all these synchronicities he was having he was talking with someone and and he was talking about like why am i having all these synchronicities around the ufo thing and they're like well looking for the truth when, with ufos is a spiritual experience and you get synchronicities when you're on on a spiritual path and i i really do think you're absolutely right um you know that 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 endless search for uh for getting closer to the truth even if you don't get the truth or getting you know your truth um which i know is kind of a weird thing to say nowadays but getting getting something to a truth that you can reconcile and live mm-hmm. with regarding a lot of this stuff i think is really super compelling and um you know i i'll never forget several years back my wife said but why do you why do you do this you know what's what's your what's your really driving factor and for me it's curiosity for me it's you know i enjoy finding these connections and i enjoy finding like you know the fact that people who are separated by vast amounts of time and space who should have had no contact with each other reporting the same things or similar things i find that really interesting compelling but i think what it really boils down to for me is just is um is really undermining that materialist paradigm undermining that sort of uh that sort of scientific surety that we talked about because I love science, but science is, you know, right. I, I love science. I hate scientism. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I know exactly um, what you mean. Yeah. Science is, <clears throat> science is, a, science is a toolkit and it's great, but people bring their own beliefs and their own, you know, biases and predispositions and whatnot. So just throwing a monkey wrench in that is part of what really drives me and just trying to show that this reductionist, materialist physicalist version of the world is probably the wrong way to look at reality and the wrong way to look at existence and uh it's getting there bit by bit that's that's part of the reason that you know sci phenomena is the hill that i'll die on because it's mm-hmm. there's just so much good research there and it's kind of like once you introduce sci phenomena into the uh into the equation then all this stuff is possible right yes because because once you introduce the fact that there are things that interact with our reality that are not physical at all (laughs) that are completely immeasurable that are produced by the mind um then we can talk about aliens and you know ghosts and tulpas and alien ghosts and and you know and uh time slips and all this crazy stuff because that introduces a variable into everything It, it introduces a variable into you know whether whether or not you're going to spill your drink, like literally mm-hmm. everything about existence becomes uh, a lot more fluid at that point. I think right. and that's what I find really super compelling. One one of the things that I kind of go by is that if we're able to think of it, chances are it probably exists somewhere. Oh, I, I, not only that, but I'm I'm reminded of uh, what was that? I think it was Timothy Leary filtered through. Um, Terrence McKenna, but it's not um, stranger than we imagine. It's stranger than we can imagine. <laughs> you know, just these <laughs> things. Uh, yeah. It's cool. So uh, how about crop circles? What's your take on crop circles? Um, I mean, like some, so people, is- some people say they're fairies. Some people say they're aliens. Well, there's a strong... Um, there's a strong through line that you can draw between 
you know, fairy circles and fairies dancing in circles and UFO landings and these things that people don't talk about anymore called saucer nests. Have you ever heard of this? No. Saucer, they used to be before crop circles, there were these saucer nests that people used to find in like swamps that were like circles of, of you know, bedded down material. Um, you know, I think if you turn your head and squint, a lot of supposed, you know, Bigfoot homes, Bigfoot nests uh, sort of look like crop circles too. Um, I think that a lot of the uh, more elaborate ones, especially, are are indeed hoaxes because there's been plenty of people who have come out and said this and there's been a lot of different literature just sort of blowing all that up having said that this is something that people don't really like to people don't really like to hear but um people who are creating crop circles who are hoaxing crop circles will oftentimes have paranormal things happen to them while they're creating the, the crop circles <laughs> like it's this really <laughs> wild thing where it's something about being in that mindset, uh, you know, will will cause people to have this. There have been examples of people who are some some hoaxers have made crop circles because the the design came to them in a flash in a vision. Um, there are people who are you know gone on record as of making crop circles and halfway through making them, these little lights start dancing through the field too. Um, and I think that there is a. I think there is a state of mind, whatever it is, that facilitates these sort of things happening. And I think that you can arrive at it, you can stumble into it, or you can kind of arrive at it by, you know, the fake it till you make it thing. Mm -hmm. um, something that I always come back to as a good example of this is, uh, are you familiar with the Philip experiment? No. So the Philip experiment um, was a uh, experiment that came together uh, in 1972 uh, by a bunch of parapsychologists in Toronto. And they said that they wanted to uh, make up a ghost. They wanted to fabricate a ghost whole cloth, right? So they said that they were going to make up this story of this, this, this kid named Philip Aylesford, who was in England and he was born in 1624. And they gave him an entire backstory, completely fictional. He was involved in the English Civil War. He was spying. He fell in love with a Romani girl who was burned as a witch and he committed suicide. They a full backstory, a full like <laughs> role-playing game character backstory for Philip, right? Mm -hmm. And um, they started having seances and reaching out to Philip and they started having uh, not only actual anomalous things happen, like, you know, the table levitating and strange breezes and voices and rapping sounds. But when they asked whatever this was, the raps that came back, you know, one for yes or two for no or whatever they were doing, um, answered questions about, yes, I'm Philip Aylesford. You know, yes, I served in the English Civil War. Yes, I was a spy. Yes, I committed suicide. All this stuff um, answered, you know, in the affirmative. So it's like they created this ghost from whole cloth. So there is an aspect of this where hoaxing or fabricating something, I think really does invite in um, some of these things. I kind of wonder if that's not what's going on with a lot of the Stephen Greer stuff. Hmm. Um, so it's just that mindset almost. It's almost like, a, to me, it almost sounds like an egregor where people create their own entity. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot along the lines of that too. But I think where this this sort of differentiates from that. And this is, again, this is a George P. Hansen thing is that the paranormal is attracted. The paranormal wants to manifest amongst people who are hoaxing 
because they already have a bad reputation because they're hoaxing. <laughs> you see what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I think that one of the consistent things that Tansen pointed out in his book is that uh, the paranormal wants to self-negate, right? It always is trying to foil itself, right? Big, big research groups are always struck by infighting, um, uh, you know, um, poltergeist cases invariably they can start out completely legit and invariably they start to fall apart and you find people faking stuff even though a lot of the initial phenomena was observed and mm -hmm. was probably real people are like well i've got to keep this kind of you know got to keep this money train going or people are expecting things etc um similarly with you know psi phenomena i mean you know yuri geller i really do think has some abilities um but he also has been caught faking <laughs> spoon bending you know and whatever this is doesn't want to be completely outed as being real. That's why, you know, cameras malfunction, batteries drain. Um, it reminds me of the, there's a great story and I, I cited a lot and I should, I should have committed it to memory, but there was a, an alien abduction where the aliens were asked by the abductee, what, you know, what do you want from us? What do you want from us as human beings? And the alien said to him, um, we don't need to believe in us, but not too much. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, I, I think is just an amazing summation of, of the way that a lot of this stuff works. Um, and so because, you know, you have these people who are, who are faking stuff, um, it, uh, it kind of is bringing itself into being. There's another good example that I haven't quite followed up on but if if i'm interpreting what i'm hearing right so far there's a book that was just released about someone who was um you know this geocaching stuff geocaching yes yeah there's a guy who set up like a story-based geocache in an area and it was he wanted to do like a spooky story-based geocache in the area right mm -hmm. it's part of like you know role-playing or whatever and it turned the area <laughs> with the geocache in it into a paranormal hotspot. <laughs> I've got to look into this some more. But like people, people who aren't even into the geocaching thing will be in that area and have started seeing like all all types of like Skinwalker Ranch type stuff, you know. Um, so I, I've got I've got to dig into that a little bit more because it sounds fascinating. But it really does go into that idea that you know um, that uh, the paranormal is drawn to these people who are who have some level of I wouldn't say disreputability because it's not really charitable, but um, mm -hmm um some degree of unbelievability you know i mean it's why every uh every you know guru turns out to be uh not only possessed of miraculous supernatural feats but also wants to bang your wife you know <laughs> it's, it's, these things go hand in hand um there's an entire section in hansen's book that's like you know comparing gurus to con men and how sometimes it's hard to to differentiate between the two and i think i think there really might be something to that the fact that this whatever this is whatever this uh, supernatural other is is playing at a level above us and is so in control of what's happening that it can manipulate things uh to literally keep itself constantly always undiscovered do you think there's a reason why it wants to remain undiscovered do you think there's some kind of prime directive such like, you know, like in Star Trek where, you know, they interact, but they can't influence? Well, if I had to be, if I had to have my feet held to the fire, I'd probably ad adopt something like uh, the idea that Valet was talking about, a, you know, UFOs being a, 
a control mechanism. You know, a lot of people heard him, you know, put forth that as an idea and they're like, oh, control, they're trying to control human beings. And that's not really what he, he really meant. He meant it was like a, almost like a thermostat, right? So it's, so I'm kind of of the, of the idea that these things exist to kick in when we all start to take ourselves too seriously. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> when we, when we start to think that we have, uh, reality locked down and reality figured out. Um, that's when this this uh, unbelievability thermostat kicks in. Um, you know, there's there's a, there's a role in a lot of the occult communities now of, of what they talk about. You know, re-enchanting the world. Um, yeah, I think that was one of the. I think that was one of the. Um, I think that was one of the goals of the Randonaut app. Right, everybody was talking about this Randonautica app where you put in goes to a quantum computer and it spits back some coordinates within a certain randomly mm-hmm. some coordinates within a specified radius of you and uh you go there and you find something anomalous or you see something you never saw you set out an intention and then it finds it um that really is a little example of sort of re-enchanting the world um you know and i think that's what a lot of these phenomena you know sort of do um we can all appreciate how beautiful forests are but they become re-enchanted when we think that bigfoot might be on you know we can admire how beautiful the stars are but we get re-enchanted a little bit when we think there might be a ufo that we might see and what that re-enchanting process does is really just allow us to appreciate these things for what they are in the first place that we sort of get cynical and jaded about that's kind of sometimes what i think um but again a lot of this stuff seems so personal that it's almost like you have your own um, higher self that's sort of like trying to work you through your own, uh, you know, living, living psychedelic uh, therapy session. If mm-hmm. that makes any sense, you know, um, it's a beautiful idea, though. Now, I was actually thinking about this today. You know, like, um, you know. As bad as sometimes things seem to be, we also live in a time where um, magic seems to be coming back into the world. I could not agree more. Um, You know, I've thought sometimes that uh, what we see in terms of spiritual belief is sort of a cycle. You have people who are... You, know, you have you have sort of if you want to look at a Prisca theologia model like the first religion whatever paganism right let's mm-hmm. just go with that paganism right and then religion creeps in and sort of codifies it and makes it stricter and you know gets rid of some of the old gods and you got religion and then that gets so restrictive and so full of itself that you get atheism kicking in that's getting rid of everything and then atheism is so reductive that people start again, re-enchanting the world and then paganism kicks in. So you're going through this cycle of paganism, religious, you know, religiosity, atheism, paganism, religiosity, atheism. Um, they're all reactions to one another. That's an idea that I've been, that I've been playing with, but, um, that's a good, that's a really good theory. Well, I mean, here's the thing. Like I was, I was going to the, uh, I was going to the beach a couple of years ago and I'm driving through like, you know, Eastern North Carolina on the way to the beach. And like, I'm thinking like 40 minutes outside of Jacksonville, which is, you know, a military base town. It's not like a giant, you know, East coast city or anything. And in the middle of this area, you know, there's trailer parks and 
just pine woods, nothing around. And there is a magic shop <laughs> just <laughs> right there. And I'm like, really? So I, I, I stop and I pull in and I'm, I'm telling you, man, that place was absolutely packed at like three o'clock on a Tuesday, <laughs> you know, uh, it was about as big as, you know, three or four double whites put together and it was absolutely shoulder to shoulder packed. And I really do think there is something to this magical um, Renaissance. I think that there really is something that's, that's going on with that. And uh, you know, I, I, I really do think that it's part of this re-enchantment idea. One of the things that I've been doing to just sort of try to re-enchant my, my life, you know, little by little is, you know, people in the paranormal are very wary against pareidolia, right? Because we hear about it all the time. We should uh, we should do it all the time. You know, pareidolia. You know, it's just uh, that it just looks like a face. It's not really a face, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so what? You know, and <laughs> <laughs> your 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 ancestors, you know, five thousand years ago might have realized that it was just a pattern but that pattern also was the face of something you know it was both it was both and it wasn't either or right it wasn't like a face in the clouds it was a face in the clouds and it was something genuinely anomalous so i've started like you know kind of saying hi to faces that you see in 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 the tree you know like Mm -hmm. oh hi (laughs) just on the off chance that it might you know be that uh that either and part of the of the, the either and equation Right. And just our, our mere existence is even kind of magical. I think we've forgotten that too. And some of yeah. this stuff brings us back to that also. Yeah. Um, you know, I've, uh, I'm not a magical practitioner myself. I've done some sigil work. Uh, it worked out real well. Um, and then, you know, that's, that's enough to be like, Oh, okay, this is real. Uh, I'm not going to mess with this anymore. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, I've I've heard too many things about uh, its efficacy, and uh, somebody said earlier, I think um, that I can't remember who who said it, but I saw it online. Um, some of the best ma- magicians are are who are working out there don't even realize that they're magicians, you know. Yeah, yeah, I've, I actually have done an episode on that also. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I think I think about I think about some of these people who. Uh, constantly you know stumble upward <laughs> yeah yeah and they don't they don't even realize what they're doing yeah 100 you know or, or or you know we're just looking at it from a different angle yeah, yeah. different perception yeah you know it's, it's something that's always been there but we're just kind of shifting how we're looking at it yeah um i think that's 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 a legitimate way to think about it and you know it it's the people who believe that prayer works, it works for them. And the people who don't believe prayer works, it doesn't. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, there are very few people who fall into that in between. I don't know category. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's kind of funny. Like, I've always been afraid of prayer because I'm afraid that it's going to work. And it's going to, that, what, sometimes I'm afraid that I'm going to manifest what I want rather than what I'm supposed to have. Yeah. So I kind of yeah. just avoid it. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, that's, or, or, that's, like I'll just send out like good vibes to people that might need it, you know, or whatever. But well, you know, that's that's, that's again a thing that I think you got to be worried, you not worried about, but you got to be concerned about, is that uh, 
with, when you're dealing with any of this stuff, including just reaching out to something in the paranormal, uh, there is no free lunch. So, um, you know, something always asks for something in return. And mm-hmm. you may realize that at the time or you might not. But, yep, it's uh, there's always a price to pay, I think. Hmm. Absolutely. This was a really interesting episode, man. You were a great guest. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. It was really, it was a lot of fun. I mean, I wasn't saying, yeah, I'm a great guest. I was saying, yeah, it was a lot of oh, fun. You, you um, feel free to brag, man. I, I brag all the time about being the greatest podcaster. So. <laughs> well, it was, it was a ton of fun. Um, and I, uh, I, I, I was just thinking to myself how like, man, this is just, this is kind of like covering a lot of, covering a lot of ground. And it's, it's, I think we both, uh, are playing off each, of, of each other really well. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, me too. Um, so before we wrap it up, where can my listeners find you? Uh, JoshuaCutchen.com, J-O-S-H-U-A-C-U-T-C-H-I-N.com. Links to all my interviews there, my books there. Um, every now and then I'll, I'll throw up a blog post, but mostly it's just news about my books because I'm just obsessed about writing books. Um, but uh, links to my books there, links to all my interviews there. And uh, yeah, uh, check it out. Uh, got about, uh, let's see, I've got uh, four books. No, three books on my own. Um, two books that are featured in essay collections. And then these two books, uh, Where the Footprints End, High Strangeness and the Bigfoot Phenomena, Volumes 1 and 2 that I've co-authored with Timothy Renner. So, yep. So what I'll do is I'll put a link to your website and I'll also put links to your books in the notes of this episode so my listeners can check them out while they're listening. Sounds great. All right. Well, thanks for being on. And uh, hang on one second. I'm just going to play the outro. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page www.everythingimaginable2020.com Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. And it's on Amazon. It'll change your life. Because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you loved what you listened to, don't forget, rate, review and subscribe.